things like how can we be a church rooted and grounded in sound biblical teaching or how can we be a community shaped and molded by god's word but friends let me say this these obvious and ordinary things are too often missed when it comes to casting vision for the church so the point is this a church whose vision doesn't entail an intentional and conscientious effort to align itself more and more with the Word of God, or a church whose vision is something outside of being biblically rooted and gospel-centered will be unstable and even worse, dangerous. So, while we consider every church to be unique, there is no single church that's left on, its, on an island to reinvent the wheel by itself. Jesus did not leave the church as an orphan. He laid the foundation, and we are called to faithfully build on that. Now, uh, having said that for today, as we think about sound biblical teaching, I want to address, as Paul does here in today's passage, a specific group of people. And that is the men in the church. In two weeks uh, from now, we'll examine what Paul has to say about womanhood. But today, I want to direct our attention to the concept and the idea of biblical manhood. In other words, what does it mean to be a man in the biblical sense? Now, currently, we are uh, living in a time where the definition of manhood has been in flux. People on both sides of the political and cultural spectrum are trying to stake their ground in this debate over what it means to be a man. If you recall, just earlier this year, uh, Gillette, the razor company, they aired a commercial during the Super Bowl and this commercial was addressing toxic masculinity and calling all men to be the best that a man could be. This was uh, the logo. It was one of those retro logos from back in the time when Gillette, their logo was the best a man can get. Um, but they sort of changed this up and they said, be the best a man can be. Now, while this commercial received uh, praise for some, it drew backlash from others, and worse, it was mocked by the internet trolls. <laughs> now, men, I am not entirely sure where each of you stand on this issue. I'm not sure how you individually define manhood. And parents, I'm not sure how you teach your sons what it means to be a man. But the Bible does seem to lay some groundwork for how we are to understand and perceive manhood. So what does Paul say? Well, verse 8, he says this. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, I'm just going to go through this verse a bit to explain what Paul is getting at. And so first, let me touch upon the negative. First, without anger or quarreling. Now, I don't want to be overly simplistic or sound like I'm making sweeping generalizations here, but I think we can all agree that generally 
men have a greater propensity towards outward expressions of anger. When angry, uh, men tend to be impulsive, irrational, or even dangerous. This is a bit of an extreme example, but if you look at just the people behind the mass shootings, the majority of them, over 90% of them, are angry young men who are acting impulsively or, or vindictively. Further, Paul here, he addresses quarreling. Now, we all struggle with controlling our tongue. If women are guilty of gossiping, as Paul speaks on later in this letter, Paul says men are guilty of being quarrelsome. Psychologists and cognitive behavior therapists, they find that this is the case. Women tend to be more agreeable, and men are more argumentative. This is a silly example, but if you just listen to uh, sports talk radio, men can go on and on and on about debating something that you can't even prove. They love to be argumentative for the sake of being argumentative. They argue over and over and over again about something that you just cannot prove. Like, for instance, who is the greatest basketball player in the world? Well, that you can prove. It's, it's LeBron James, right? You, we all know it's LeBron James. If you disagree with me, uh, we can quarrel about that after service. But the general public, um, the, ge you know, the general public tends to think that women talk more than men. Uh, but recent studies show that in a large group setting, and by large I mean seven or more people, men talk way more than women do. In other words, in a more public setting, in environments with a larger audience, men are way more talkative. And, you know, I wonder why. But studies also show that women, uh, they talk more than men in smaller contexts, and they're better at having longer and extended conversations. So it seems that Paul is onto something here in this letter when he addresses gossip among women and quarreling among men. This is not just specific to the church at Ephesus, but there seems to be a general truth behind this, that men tend to be more angry and quarrelsome. Now, the reason why I am bringing up these social and cultural perceptions is because I think there is this misconception out there that equates masculinity with aggression. In other words, there is this idea out there that for us to be a man, for someone to be a man, a manly man, he has to be competitive, contentious, and combative, combative if necessary. Right? Who is a man? A man is someone who doesn't stand down to no one. Right? On the other hand, a man who is passive, subdued, agreeable, empathetic, cooperative, that's not really manly. Again, I don't know uh, your personal thoughts on this issue, and uh, I don't want to be like Gillette telling you what a real man is. But the Bible clearly does not define masculinity in these ways. 
In fact, someone who is argumentative, someone who is angry, someone who is overly aggressive isn't more of a man, but he is less of a man. Because being angry means that things like patience, kindness, and forgiveness are absent in that person. And these things are requisite for the development and fostering of relationships, things that men should deeply care for. And so scripture seems to tell us that a man who thinks he is independent, self-reliant, and as a result, a man who has isolated himself isn't more of a man, but someone who is dependent and someone who is dependable someone who is forgiving and vulnerable, someone who is within community and shows his deep humanity. This is what the Bible says all men should aspire towards. The prime example of a man or the prime example of a human being is Jesus himself. And so we find here Paul as he addresses the men, the negative, being angry and quarrelsome. Paul says, avoid these things. Do not get involved in these things. Instead, the positive, he says, men should pray, lifting up holy hands. Now, just two quick notes on this. First, men says pray. Uh, he's, Paul says, men should pray. Pray. Okay. First, prayer. Prayer is characterized by vulnerability, dependence, and trust things that men find very, very difficult to do. Being vulnerable before God, being dependent upon a higher being, trusting in someone other than yourself. These are things that men typically find difficult to do. But Paul here, he is instructing men to pray, to be vulnerable before God, to be dependent on God, and to trust in God. Once again, Paul, he is tracing the lines of biblical manhood. You know, oftentimes there is within the church uh, this, this fallacy that says uh, men should lead and teach while women should follow and pray. And this is entirely wrong. There is nothing further from the truth than that. In fact, in the New Testament, if you read the New Testament, uh, men are instructed much more to pray than women. Okay. The Bible instructs men to pray, and I think it's because men have a tendency towards self-reliance and self-importance. And so if I can just address the men for a bit, men, prayer doesn't chip away at your masculinity. Prayer is not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength. You know, I had some personal reflections on this uh, recently uh, with my own children. Um, I like to think of myself as a very stern father who uh, shows no weaknesses to my children. I like to think that my word is the law in our household, and I rule with an iron fist. Uh, but more recently, um, my son, my oldest son, he saw me in a personal act of worship. I was having a time of just worship and prayer, 
And he saw me, and he walks in, and he sees that, you know, I'm deep in worship. And, you know, he sees tears just rolling down my face. And he comes in, he sits down next to me, um, and he just sits there. And when I'm done, I open my eyes, and he asks me, Daddy, why are you crying? And I said, Caleb, it's because I was thinking about the Lord and just how good he is. And he says, you know, Daddy, I was crying too, but that's because I just yawned. <laughs> and I said, well, no, that's not the same thing. I was moved because I, I felt the Lord's presence and just how amazing he is and how much of a sinner I am. And he doesn't really understand the concept of tears of joy or tears of gratitude just yet. And I told him, you know, I, I moved because I'm so thankful for who the Lord is and what he has done in my life. You know, while I was sitting there explaining that to him, I started to have some doubt, and I started to question, should I be doing this? In other words, should I show dependence upon God to my children? Right? Because for me, it was, it, I felt like I was being weak in front of him. And, you know, as I started to reflect upon that, I said, no, you know, I should show that prayer and dependence upon God is strength, not weakness. You know, Paul here, he's instructing men to pray. In other words, he's instructing men to not rely upon themselves, to not depend upon themselves but show vulnerability and dependence. In other words, if you look what he says, how should we pray? Consider the posture. He says, lift up holy hands. This lifting up of holy hands, this posture is a way of expressing worship and surrender. It's showing deep dependence, saying, God, this is, this is who I am. I need you. But also when Paul says, lift up holy hands, this, this idea of holy hands, Paul, he's actually referring to the Old Testament and this, this idea where priests, they would wash their hands before entering the tent of meeting. And this washing of hands was an outward expression of inward purity. In other words, the lifting up of holy hands in prayer meant that the person doing this act had no ulterior motives but it was this inward and outward expression of true devotion to God. In other words, when Paul is saying, men, lift up holy hands in prayer, he's saying, lift up holy hands, show a readiness to wholly seek and to do God's will. So if I can sum up biblical manhood for a second, it's this. According to the Bible, a man is someone who understands the importance of relationships and communities, a man who exhibits compassion, forgiveness, and kindness, and it's a man who acknowledges his weakness and finds strength in and through prayer. Or succinctly, a man in the biblical sense is one who is dependent upon God and dependable to others. 
a few months ago, my wife and I, we had lunch with a few of our young adult sisters. And um, we were having lunch together. And after about two hours or so, um, we got into conversations about the real important things, which is relationships. We started talking about relationships. And you know, we asked the question, so what are you looking for in a guy? And this one uh, young adult said this. She said, I don't know if my bar is set really low, but I just want someone who is dependable. And I don't have high expectations. I'm not looking for a Prince Charming, but I just want someone who's reliable. She said, is that so bad? Is that such a low bar? And at first I thought, ouch, what does that say about our men? But then second, I thought, you know what? That's not really a low bar. That's someone who has embraced the biblical definition of manhood. Now, I didn't say that at the moment uh, because my mind didn't go there quickly enough. I just chuckled when she said that. And so that sister probably left discouraged. But if you're here, that's not a low bar. You should seek a man who is dependable and a man who is dependent upon God. So, it seems like uh, with, with this church in Ephesus, uh, this church was no different than us. The church that missionary Paul himself founded was filled with boastful and self-promoting men. Men who were angry and quarrelsome. Men who are fighting over inconsequential issues. Men, who desire, men whose desire to be right was more than their desire to be in the truth. And a result of all of this trivial controversy that was going on in the church, the gospel was being hindered. We saw a few weeks ago that the church was more concerned with speculation rather than stewardship, right? The church, they were actively fighting and arguing, and as a result, the gospel was idle. So the people were just busy fighting amongst themselves, but as a result, the gospel was idle. Even worse, um, you know, going further, there were arguments in the church over the validity of Paul's missionary journeys. As Paul and Timothy were out promoting the spreading of the gospel, the church was so caught up with itself that the members thought mission and evangelism, these things weren't necessary. I'm sure you can imagine people within the church objecting to Paul's work by saying, Paul, why are you out there when we need you in here? Why are our resources going out there when they should be here helping us? You know, frankly, men have a tendency to be territorial. And there is a natural inclination of protecting their own. It also doesn't help that Ephesus was a major city and hub, and the places that Paul was visiting on his missionary journeys were, were perceived to have been occupied by heathens, men and women who were unlike us. And so there was a lot of arguing and anger, especially among the men in the church. 
And Paul seems to be correcting this wrong teaching. In verse 4, he says this, God, he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul, he is deliberately battling this false teaching where people are saying, Paul, you don't need to be out there. You don't need to be missional. You don't need to be spreading the gospel. We're good ourselves. Let's stick to ourselves. Paul is saying, no, that is wrong. We shouldn't be arguing about that because God desires all people to be saved. God's heart is for the world. And Paul goes on to expound in this introduction. He says, for this reason I was appointed. There is only one mediator, only one salvation, only one Savior. And God's desire is for the church to be missional. And so this inward focus that the church has, Paul is saying, is contrary to the gospel. Now, according to the New Testament, in the New Testament's understanding of the church, missions and evangelism isn't a luxury. It is a necessity. It's a part of the gospel. It's a reason why the church exists. And if you look in your Bibles in verses 1 and 2, where Paul says you should pray for all people, especially kings and people in high position, Paul, he's saying, listen, pray for these people with the end or the goal in mind, and that is missions. Pray so that the gospel can go out unhindered. Now, even in the midst of persecution and hardships, Paul, he's instructing the church, and the men especially, to pray and live peaceful and godly lives to show forth the power of the gospel. You see, the goal and the purpose of these things is to be missional, is so that God's power in Christ can be shown forth. So if I can circle back again to biblical manhood, I'm not sure if um, I've persuaded you in any way, and I'm not sure if you are motivated in any way to pursue this. But the goal and the purpose of pursuing biblical manhood is not so that you can better yourself. Pursuing biblical manhood is not a self-care or self-improvement method. Pursuing biblical manhood is certainly not a way for us to get married. Pursuing a life of biblical manhood is first and foremost about missions, is to show forth the power of God's salvation, to show that God can save and redeem even the worst of all sinners. The power of God's salvation so that it can be manifested in and through you, the church. You know, let me uh, just conclude with this. As we think about the church in Ephesus and uh, VisionCast together for our church, we can safely conclude that a church that is about itself fails to be the church. 
one of the basic characteristics of a church is that a church is missional. The goal and the motive for why we do the things we do, why we exist, is so that God's desire for all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth can be met and fulfilled. This is why the church exists. So a church is first and foremost a body that is not about itself. But a church is a body whose care and concern is to bring God glory, to make disciples of Jesus, and to go out in the power of the Holy Spirit, spreading the good news of the gospel. And instrumental towards that, or instrumental for that, is the men of the church. For the men not to be quarrelsome, for the men not to be angry, for men not to be argumentative or petty or boastful or rude or self-reliant and self-dependent, but instrumental towards the goal of seeing God's glory increase is men who are prayerfully ready to wholly devote themselves to God's mission. Paul is instructing men to lift up holy hands in prayer. And he is instructing them to do that so that they may wholly devote themselves to God's missional call, to give themselves up, to lay down whatever right they think they have, and to join in what God is now, as we think about what we are to be as a church, before we start plotting out our mission statement, our vision statement, and you know, writing the things that we want to do, first, we need to be a congregation. The men in this congregation need to be prayerfully ready to wholly give themselves for God's missional call. Amen. And I pray that our congregation would be ready towards that. Join me in prayer at this time.